A hundred bright white sheep on bright white snow high up in the beautiful Tetons with their bodies ripped apart. Bright red blood everywhere. It's not a good look. I mean, it's understandable why everyone freaked out, you know? Welcome back to Yonder Lies. I'm Hannah Haberman. And I'm Jesse Bryant. Today we'll be discussing mountain goat management in Grand Teton National Park. And if that seems like an overly specific topic or something that you might not be interested in, I'd just suggest you give the story a shot. The most basic frame for what's going on here is this. There are mountain goats in Grand Teton National Park. They're invasive, and for a variety of reasons we'll get into, they're threatening the extinction of the Teton bighorn sheep. So now, the Park Service finds itself in the conundrum of having to take a public stance on how to manage mountain goats, which is where the whole machine gunning thing comes in. This brings up a bunch of different issues that we'll try to touch on in this episode. Originally, we'd planned to talk about this conflict later in the spring, but since this decision-making process is playing out as we speak and has been covered in local news and media, we thought it might be nice to use our platform here at Yonder Lies to try to get the facts straight ask some questions, and ultimately start a conversation for those who've been following this drama as it's been unfolding, and for those who might be new to the story. Yeah, because I mean, this is taking place on federal land with federal tax dollars, so this is really about everyone. And in some ways, this story will revisit a theme that's central to our podcast. Who lays claim to land and who gets to decide what happens on that land? In this case, the conflict is between the native Teton bighorn sheep and the relative newcomers, the invasive, disease-carrying mountain goats. What seems to be at stake here is the future of the bighorn sheep who will likely go extinct if we keep with the status quo. Among other things, what is particularly interesting about this case is the real, on-the-ground decision-making process of the National Park Service. Some questions we'll address here are, what exactly does invasive or native mean in a conservation sense, and how is that distinction made within the Park Service? We'll try to draw in stakeholders from different perspectives and make sense of how we might find a satisfying option in this case, or if there really is one at all. I'll admit, as a bit of an environmental policy nerd, I'm really excited to get into the weeds on this one and really see how the Park Service makes decisions on the fates of different species. To provide some compare and contrast, as my high school English teachers like to say, we'll also talk about another case with parallels to this one playing out with the management of mountain goats in Olympic National Park in Washington State. There were some helicopters involved there too, but a noticeable lack of machine guns. And what makes this case here in the Tetons unique is this. The beginning of the end could happen at any time. There are diseases that mountain goats carry which, if transmitted to the bighorns, will, in all likelihood, mean the end of the bighorns. It almost feels like a zombie story. Zombie vibes, for sure. So the story is sort of a enviro, zombie, immigrant, invasion, extermination tale. Charming. <laughs> Charming indeed. So Jess, take us way back. Because this story actually starts before white settlement, not just of Jackson, but of North America. So bighorn sheep are brown? Great start, Jess. Glad we got that out of the way. (laughs) Yeah, that wasn't very specific. A better distinguishing feature is that throughout their lifetime, they grow these really cool curling crescent shape horns. 
Unlike domestic sheep, they may seem to be frail and breakable. Bighorns are burly and hardy creatures. Before white settlement, there were as many as 2 million bighorn sheep throughout North America. However, by the early 1900s, that population had dropped from a couple million to less than 10,000. Like many other species, the drop in numbers was partially driven by overhunting, but there was also something else at work for bighorn sheep in particular. A disease carried from Europe by domesticated sheep, pneumonia, was particularly devastating to the North American bighorn population. Fortunately for the bighorn sheep that called what would become Jackson, Wyoming home for nearly 10,000 years, the area was one of the last places to be settled by white folks in the lower 48 states, which delayed the arrival of pneumonia. Even up through the first half of the 1900s, these sheep continued their traditional ways of life, migrating between the warmer valley buttes in the winter and high up in the cooler Teton range in the summer. But as white settlers began to develop the Valley of Jackson Hole through the 1940s into the 1950s, the sheep's migration route was cut off by development, and the herd became essentially stranded high up in the Teton Range year-round. Wait, what about the sheep over at Miller Butte? Like, on the Elk Refuge? I see them out there all the time, and they seem to be doing pretty well. Yeah, so that's, that's actually the Grovant herd of bighorns, and they still sort of migrate up high in the Grovant during the summer and winter down in the valley, but that is actually separate from the herd that we're talking about here in this episode, and that herd's actually completely cut off from the bighorns and the Tetons. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, keep going. So the Teton bighorn have ended up in the Tetons year-round. Though their summer lifestyle saw no change, their winters have become really tough, as anyone who's been in the Tetons in the winter might understand. Today, the herd spends winters eking out a lifestyle at 10,000 feet, where the temperatures often remain far below zero for weeks at a time. The Teton bighorns subsist off of lichen and dead grass on wind-swept ridges, but ultimately survive on fat stored up during the summer months. And for females, the winter months are also when they're carrying lambs, which adds further to the immense burden of survival. Today, the thing we call the Teton Bighorn Herd has actually become two relatively separate entities, about 50 sheep in the northern part of the park and another 50 sheep in the south, with only about 30 breeding females in total between the two. The herd is important in its own right, but it also has immense interest to researchers, as there are some of the few bighorns left that are genetically representative of pre-disease North American sheep. Because of that, there's an alluring sense of purity and nativeness around these sheep. Unfortunately, it seems that their 10,000-year run is under an enormous cocktail of threats. The first threat is backcountry skiing, which in recent years has exploded into the mainstream of Jackson. With more people high up in the Tetons in the winter, the sheep are now competing for habitat with humans during an already stressful time of the year. We'll circle back to this at the end of the episode. Yeah. And the second threat, and what we really want to focus on here first in this episode, is the relatively recent appearance of mountain goats in the park. And if the story of the sheep is one of isolation and staying close to home, the story of the goats is one of homelessness and adaptation. Okay, Han, you take this one. So, mountain goats are white. And... <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's important to set the scene. Nice. <laughs> I swear the first time I saw one, I thought it was a bear. They're giant animals with thick, shaggy coats and Gandalf-like beards that make them look really, really wise. Yeah, the first time I saw a mountain goat, I was hiking through just a bunch of avalanche debris down in the Snake River Range, actually, and literally almost stepped on one, and when it jumped up, I thought it was a white bear. <laughs> <laughs> 
Getting back on track. Sorry. The native range of mountain goats is from Alaska and the Yukon, down the northern Rockies, all the way to the Lemhi Range in Idaho, just north of the Snake River Plateau. Importantly, there's no good evidence to suggest that mountain goats are native to the Tetons or the surrounding ranges. But in 1969, motivated primarily by a desire to hunt mountain goats, the Idaho Department of Fish and Game took five female and seven male goats from their home at Snow Peak, Idaho, near the Canadian border, and basically just tossed them into the Snake River Range, just south of the Tetons. There was no consultation with other land managers also working in the ecosystem, whether at Wyoming Game and Fish, the U.S. Forest Service, nor the National Park Service. There wasn't even really a plan to monitor the goats as their population grew. After being tranquilized, abducted, and dropped off into a completely alien land, these few goats learned to live on the land and after a few decades seemed to fit in pretty well in their new home. They figured it out. These transplants slowly flourished for decades without much notice from land managers, and like most animals, they didn't seem to care much about state or managerial boundaries on the landscape. In 1989, while at the University of Montana, shout out to my home state, James A. Hayden integrated a handful of disparate studies on the goats into a graduate thesis. After more than 100 pages of data, Hayden transitioned into a section of management recommendations. And in it, as if prophetically, Hayden again in the 1980s wrote this, quote, the population of goats in the Snake River Range should be kept below 125. This population size would help minimize the chance of adversely affecting the relic bighorn sheep population in Grand Teton National Park. It is a valid concern that permanent colonization of the national park by goats could easily lead to the elimination of the native bighorn population. What? He wrote that in the 1980s? He knew what was up. What have we been doing? (laughs) (laughs) I guess not listening to James A. Hayden. Why have we not taken that seriously? Well, sometimes theses get lost. (laughs) That's true. Anyway. (laughs) So the stage is set for a classic American story. The native and the immigrant, situated as though only one can win. And in this case, as in nearly all other stories of migration, the deeper you dig, the wider the web of those implicated in the conundrum grows. And as tends to happen in complicated stories like these, there may not be a clear, single sense of justice to be pursued. It may just be that mistakes were made in the past, and people, or in this case, goats and sheep, might be harmed. Okay. So now that we've met two of our main characters, the goats and the sheep, let's try to understand what the problem actually is here. Because every good story needs a problem. Needs a drama. No. (laughs) (laughs) Support for Yonder Lies comes from Think WY, Wyoming Humanities. Wyoming Humanities supports programs, grants, and initiatives in Teton County and across Wyoming that explore history, culture, and the human experience. To learn more about the Wyoming Humanities Council, visit thinkwy.org. Again, that's thinkwy.org. The first mountain goats were observed in Grand Teton National Park in 1979 and were understood as invasive at that time. But it wasn't until the 2000s that scientists believe a breeding population was actually established which made things sort of a bigger deal. In 2013, the Grand Teton National Park Foundation called the mountain goats, quote, 
perhaps the biggest ecological threat to the area in modern history. Ooh, that's a strong statement. Yeah, I know. I would be like, humans, maybe? <laughs> well, that's a good point. But basically, people started freaking out. Yeah, exactly. The disease-infested zombies are here. <laughs> and where there's a problem, there's often research to figure out what's going on and, hopefully, how to solve it. In 2014, the park began heavily studying the mountain goats, which revealed a population of about 100, most of which hosted diseases, particularly pneumonia, that would be potentially devastating to the native bighorn sheep population. Though the bighorn sheep and mountain goats seemed to have similar population sizes in 2014, almost all of the trends, even outside of disease, pointed towards the plain reality that if nothing was done, the goats would outcompete and probably eliminate the bighorn sheep in the Tetons. So, from the perspective of the Park Service, there is a problem. Plain and simple, the National Park Service has a legal obligation to protect native species from invasive species when at all possible. So with the best science saying that if nothing is done, the bighorn sheep will go extinct, the park was forced to act. And not only that, the park was forced to act urgently because, remember, any day that disease could jump from the goats to the sheep. So what was their response? In 2018, Grand Teton National Park released its mountain goat management plan and the accompanying environmental assessment. The goal of it was removing, quote, the mountain goat population as quickly as possible to minimize impacts to native species, ecological communities, and visitors. Jess, for people who might not know, what is an environmental assessment? Sure. An environmental assessment is part of something called NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. And so what NEPA says is that if you're receiving funding from the federal government to do any sort of project, whether a mountain goat management plan or building a bridge, you have to go through this procedural law that forces you to outline the potential environmental impacts of the project. And these assessments, are they private, behind doors, or does anyone have access to them? So once you've finished your environmental assessment, whether you're a construction company or the National Park Service, you then have to present that environmental assessment to the public, and there has to be a mandatory comment period where people can submit comments, whether on behalf of organizations or as individuals. But part of the environmental assessment is you have to outline potential alternatives that you will follow, different paths that the project could potentially take. One of the required paths is always no action. So what happens if you do nothing? And then, depending on the project, there can be different sort of plans to realize the project. In this case, there was the no action plan, which we've already sort of talked about. If nothing is done, what will happen? The mountain goats will probably push the sheep to extinction. But the other potential alternatives in this case were lethal removal of the goats only or a combination of lethal and non-lethal removal, which, according to the National Park Service, was the preferred option. So just to reiterate, the three paths proposed to move forward with the mountain goats were one, no action, two, lethal removal only, and three, a combination of lethal and non-lethal removal, which as you just said, was the preferred option indicated by the National Park Service. Exactly. 
So what do these options look like and what are their implications? Can we start by talking on behalf of the do-nothing option for a second, which is essentially an argument for the mountain goats? Sounds good. Let's go for it. Okay, so one way to see this situation is that, frankly, the goats are just out-competing the sheep. (laughs) For those who believe in some sort of pure Darwinian sense of nature, the do-nothing option may feel the more just option, as it's just letting nature play itself out the way it would anyway. And then there's also the question of money. Like, who is paying for the resolution of this species dispute? Who's fronting the bill for a problem that some state employees in Idaho created? Well, the American taxpayer is. Is that right? And then there's also just a compelling story of justice for the goats themselves, right? These are creatures that were abducted from their homelands by humans and tossed into an alien landscape. For decades, they've worked hard to create some sort of viable culture in a new place and have done a really good job of it. What's more American than that? And then there's kind of just the sheep could be screwed anyway. Like, I've had people tell me very explicitly that they think the sheep are screwed regardless of what we do. Counter-argument. You've got a lot of good points, and I totally hear you. Uh, It leaves you with a lot to think about, like how labels like native or invasive change how we manage animals, who pays for this. Uh, Is it the role of management to keep things as they were or adapt? But although we could dig into all of that for hours, we're missing one really important fact here that kind of shapes everything. And that one really important fact is this. The plain and simple truth in this whole ordeal is that the National Park Service has a statutory, that is lawful, obligation to prioritize the needs of native over non-native species. To say it again, The National Park Service is required by law to prioritize bighorn sheep over mountain goats because bighorn sheep are understood as native and mountain goats aren't. Section 444 of the National Park Service Management Policy states that, quote, non-native species will not be allowed to displace native species if this displacement can be prevented. There's long been an orientation in conservation towards nativeness in terms of management especially when it relates to preserving broader ecosystem health. If a creature is labeled invasive, that's essentially a policy death sentence. Yeah, but like, I don't know, like what, does that actually mean anything? What does that mean? Like, how do we, how do we label something as invasive? Does that even matter? I mean, it's a good point, and we could probably talk for hours about the linguistics of it, but in a lot of cases, this management has been for a really good reason. Invasive species can be ecologically and economically devastating. Invasive cane toads in Australia grew from a population of 100 in 1935 to 1.5 billion by 2010. People familiar with the American West might know about zebra mussels, which have proven to be problematic for aquatic ecosystems and boaters alike, or the notorious pine beetle, which has destroyed massive amounts of forest land throughout the West. And because of these environmental horror stories, many land management agencies have codified ecological commitments against invasive species into law. So that doesn't seem to bode too well for the goats. You're right. And just to summarize, in case you're getting a little lost in all of these points, the National Park Service doesn't actually have much leeway on the matter of management. They have a statutory obligation to do anything they can to keep the native bighorn sheep alive, basically at any cost. And that reality means option one, no management, 
no action isn't really an option at all, which leaves us with option two and option three, lethal removal only or a combination of lethal and non-lethal removal of mountain goats. Support for Yonder Lies comes from Wildlife Expeditions of Teton Science Schools. For over 20 years, Wildlife Expeditions has been leading educational wildlife tours in Jackson Hole, Grand Teton, and Yellowstone National Parks. To see wildlife and support education, visit wildlifeexpeditions.org. The park ultimately went with option three, lethal and non-lethal removal of goats, which in September 2019 was given the go-ahead by the Council on Environmental Quality, who reviews NEPA assessments. Originally, option three called for beginning with non-lethal removal of about 25% of the more than 100 goats before beginning lethal tactics. But why? Why non-lethal first? Well, the idea was that non-lethal removal would be easier when the goats didn't already have sort of a negative association with the helicopters that would be used in their capture. As the goats learned to avoid the helicopters, the logic went, they would have to then revert to the lethal methods of removal. Which, to me, begs the question, why wouldn't they just take all of them out non-lethally? It's funny that there was never a non-lethal only removal option. Did they do something like this in Olympic National Park, like last year? I remember seeing pictures of tranquilized mountain goats, like dangling from helicopters. <laughs> Your memory serves you correctly. Those pictures are pretty goofy. I would recommend people check it out. But what happened in Washington was like this. Like Grand Teton, mountain goats were introduced to what would become Olympic National Park way back in the 1920s. Although it was understood that the mountain goats were not native to the Olympic Peninsula, they hung out there for quite some time, their population reaching over a thousand at some points. But in 2010, a tragic human-goat interaction served as the catalyst for mountain goat relocation. A hiker was gored and killed by a mountain goat in 2010 in Olympic National Park, throwing a match on the conversation about the goat's place in the park. The Olympics lack a natural source for the salts that goats crave, so goats have learned to find salt from people, especially sweaty hikers. And sometimes getting that salt can, unfortunately, get a little aggressive. Hence, the problem, and therefore a need for a solution. In 2018, Olympic National Park went through a similar process as Grand Teton. They released a management plan and an environmental impact statement, but their plan largely focused on relocating the mountain goats to the North Cascade Mountains, where mountain goats are native. Over five years, the plan hopes to relocate as many of the 700 mountain goats as possible. After two years, they've moved 275 goats to the Cascades so far, with an additional 51 goats removed, who were either relocated to zoos, euthanized, or died during capture or transfer. Although they hope to relocate as many goats as possible, their plan does also include lethal removal once transfer becomes impractical due to cost or terrain constraints. It's been messy and far from perfect, and notably, it's also not been cheap. 2019's removal efforts cost an estimated 480000 which puts the last two years somewhere right around a million dollars. And I'd imagine here in the Tetons, it would be at least that much money. And there are a handful of other reasons, too, why non-lethal removal of goats is just a little trickier here in Jackson. The first thing is where they live. 
I've seen folks online calling for tranquilization of the goats and removal, but the problem with that is in the Tetons, these goats literally live on the side of cliffs, and if tranquilized, they often fall to their death anyway. The other thing is that flying helicopters in the part of the Tetons where these goats live is a total nightmare. The winds are always pouring over the range, and the weather can change really, really fast. It's just plainly more difficult. Looking at these two cases side by side does help illuminate why an emphasis on lethal removal here in the Tetons is, frankly, the more straightforward option, even if it doesn't feel so straightforward ethically. So let's go over a quick timeline of what's happened here over the last year and where we're at today. First, there's already been hunting. Normally, Wyoming law limits a hunter to only one mountain goat license in a lifetime. But last May, Wyoming Game and Fish opened up new hunting areas in the Absorcas and the Tetons, west of the National Park, but not in the National Park. They also initiated a new hunting license type, which opened up 48 more mountain goat licenses. Of the 48 tags, 22 were harvested by hunters this fall, in 2019. But those hunting efforts didn't quite do as much as hoped for. So in early January of this year, 2020, Grand Teton National Park announced that it had hired flight contractor Baker Aircraft to help begin the imminent lethal removal of mountain goats from the park. The section of the park where the goats lived would be closed to allow the machine gun mounted helicopter space to kill as many mountain goats as possible without ideally killing skiers too. Seems like a smart move. Yeah. The annihilated carcasses, the park noted, would be at least left on the land to provide ecological and biological benefits. And to be honest, I can't think of worse optics. A <laughs> hundred bright white sheep on bright white snow high up in the beautiful Tetons with their bodies ripped apart. Bright red blood everywhere. It's not a good look. I mean, it's understandable why everyone freaked out, you know? But the program was delayed due to weather, and that opened a window for backlash, which came from all sides. I mean, you can imagine the harsh comments online, but even Wyoming Game and Fish, who continue to support the removal of the goats, released a statement in January condemning the helicopter gunning tactic. In it, Game and Fish wrote that, quote, the use of aerial gunning by Grand Teton National Park personnel to remove the goats is inconsistent with all notions of game management, fair chase, and totally inconsistent with years of Grand Teton National Park management of big game animals. And Game and Fish Commissioner Mitch Schmidt said that, quote, the decision to use aerial gunning flies in the face of all Wyoming values with how we approach wildlife management. The first thing to note here is that state game agencies like Idaho Fish and Game, who released the goats in the first place so many years ago, have a huge historical orientation towards hunting. Oftentimes, animal populations are conserved for their hunting value. And so, it makes sense that Wyoming Game and Fish would want the mountain goats to be hunted rather than machine gun from the sky. And I think there is more than just hunting utility in what they're saying. Traditional hunting and the subsequent use of that meat does seem more ethical than machine gunning goats from the sky. But also, machine gunning goats from the sky is a lot more efficient. 
And remember, this is the Park Service, whose goal is simply to remove the invasive mountain goats before they can pass pneumonia to the native bighorn sheep. The park eventually compromised a bit and agreed to also incorporate what they call, quote, qualified volunteers to assist in the, quote, ground-based lethal removal activities. So, in normal words, hunters hunting? <laughs> yeah. And the meat, what's cool, the meat will actually be donated rather than left on the land. But how does the park plan to distribute those permits? That's still unclear. Okay. So is it safe to say that at some point the helicopter gunning is still going to happen, that the park might use non-lethal removal methods, maybe, and they're somehow going to have hunters involved up there, high in the Tetons, killing the goats and harvesting their meat? Yeah, I think all that's fair. And that we, aka the general public, don't really know when all this is going to go down. But that from the park's perspective, hopefully as soon as possible. What? Originally we thought that's where this episode would end. Some ambiguity, an unclear timeline, an ethical dilemma to ponder. But as we are finishing up recording this on Friday morning, the Jackson Hole Daily broke a story titled, Grand Teton Starts Aerial Cull of Non-Native Goats. So, as soon as possible is, it turns out, today, Friday. The removal will likely occur between now, as we're recording, and when this episode comes out on Sunday. Much of the park is closed, particularly between Cascade Canyon and Snowshoe Canyon. We've learned, too, that rifles and shotguns, not machine guns, will be used. But the desired end goal is still the same. Denise German, park spokeswoman, is quoted in the article saying, quote, The intent is to remove all of the mountain goats, and we want to do it as quickly as we can. Carcass recovery is unlikely, but if they are able to remove any, they'll be sent to Utah State University to study the health and condition of the mountain goats. What the article doesn't say is how lethal ground-based removal, a.k.a. hunting, will be incorporated. It also doesn't say anything about non-lethal removal attempts at capture. I suspect, honestly, that the park will actually at some point integrate hunting into this picture, but I am suspicious about any non-lethal removal ever happening. Yeah, it's really hard to say. For me, it feels kind of surreal to have spent the last few weeks researching about this and then, at the last minute, to find out there's just helicopters out there, as we're recording this. It feels a lot more... real. So, where does all of this leave us? What can we take away? I think for me the first thing to note here, going way back to the beginning, is that land management has actually changed a lot since the 60s. Today, you can't do what Idaho Fish and Game did and get away with it, just like throwing random animals into new environments. Another big takeaway for me is this conversation about native versus non-native species and how these different designations are managed. What obligation do we have now to relocate non-native species, particularly when the species were moved for hunting, for human needs, in the first place? It leaves me thinking, at what point do we value the health and well-being of one species over another? How much does that depend on a species' relationship to broader ecosystem health? And how do we weigh human and non-human interactions in those decisions? For me, there's also the lingering question of, okay, say the mountain goats are eradicated, perhaps even before we release this episode. 
the sheep still have problems. There's still a fortress of homes smack in the middle of their traditional migration route. And those homes aren't going anywhere, and even if they did, evidence suggests that it takes about 100 years for migration routes to be relearned. Also, there's the question of backcountry skiing, which every year seems to push the sheep higher and higher into the range. The Backcountry Alliance is a new group that is formed to try to get skiers to self-regulate in this regard. So, if people are interested in skiing responsibly in the Tetons, we suggest you check out their work. It's also worth pointing out that there have been a lot of people working on this issue for decades. Steve Kilpatrick and the folks at Wyoming Wild Sheep Foundation have been advocating for the Teton Bighorns forever. And in terms of work currently being done, there's also the Teton Bighorn Sheep Working Group with representatives from various agencies who just in January released a very comprehensive report about the goat and sheep situation. If you want to learn more, we suggest you check out this report. I'm left with two conflicting ideas in my head. On one hand, it seems in the common interest that the sheep are protected from the goats. But on the other hand, the most realistic way of doing so, the aerial gunning feels nasty and unethical. But I guess that's sometimes how it goes, right? I guess. It's just that decisions made in the past that seemed like good ideas oftentimes can put people in the future in these sort of lose-lose ethical situations. And if you think about it, with our planet changing so rapidly, and with our global inability to plan for the future, maybe this case is a bit of a preview of what is to come with a ton of environmental conversations, putting future humans in morally compromising situations. Yeah, in this case, there isn't really a morally satisfying end, is there? Literally, as we record this, goats are getting gunned down in the park. It's weird. Technical support comes from Jackson's community radio station, KHOL 89.1, and the Northern Rockies Conservation Cooperative. A big thanks to the Jackson Hole Historical Society for providing access to hours of archival audio. Special shout out to Doug Haberman for our theme music and Becca Hold Houston for our beautiful cover art. If you haven't already, please rate and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And if you'd like to support the show with a small monthly donation, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash yonderlies. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash yonderlies.